From McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth, and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. For our 16th episode, I'm excited to share a conversation with Josh Tetrick, CEO and co-founder of EJust, a California-based company that makes eggs from plants and produces meat from animal cells. The company was founded in 2011 and has sold the equivalent of 100 million eggs via Just Egg, a plant-based egg substitute made from mung beans. In 2017, the unicorn announced its intention to develop lab-grown meat, and in 2020, Singapore became the first nation on earth to approve the sale of cultured chicken. You'll hear Josh tell us about his mission to change the nature of meat production, convincing consumers to accept unconventional meat, and the challenges of scaling a new industry. Josh, good morning. Thanks so much for for joining us. Looking forward to this conversation. Good to be here, Andrew. So before we go into Eat Just and, you know, alt protein and and, uh, cultured meats, I wanted to to take a step back to maybe a moment where you realized you wanted to build Eat Just. It really um, started with my best friend, who's also the co-founder of the company, who I grew up with, opening up my eyes to the reality behind the chicken, burgers, pork chops that I'm eating that we're all eating. When he began to tell me that a chicken nugget isn't just a chicken nugget, but there are billions of animals behind that. And over a third of the world is dedicated to planting soy and corn to feed the animals we, especially chicken. I thought he had to be wrong. And I kept eating a lot of chicken and beef and pork chops and playing football and going on with my life. But it stayed with me. And I eventually went to law school. I played a little college football before that. Spent a little bit of time in sub-Saharan Africa trying to, trying to do some good work with kids. And um, I eventually got to the point where I felt like nonprofits have their place and international institutions like the UN have their place, but they're not with me. That I want to figure out a way to use capitalism to solve a big, meaningful, urgent problem. And then I, I moved back to, to the U.S. and was lucky enough to have a, an ex-girlfriend who gave me a couch to hang on as I, I sorted out what exactly I wanted to do. And I remembered what he opened up my eyes to and began to ask questions like, what would the world look like if meat didn't require slaughter? What would the world look like if we could find a plant that made a better egg? Uh, what would it look like if we made real meat without the need to, for a single animal or a single tree to be removed? And I spent probably about four to six months trying to sort out these ideas on her couch. She only gave me six months uh, and then eventually presented um, a rough sketch to a guy named Vinod Kosla, who's the, the founder of Sun Microsystems, who's invested in a lot of the, the companies that uh, occupy our lives today. He took a bet on it, put half a million dollars into that idea. Then I was off her couch and off to the races. Wow. So, I mean, you had some personal experiences where you got some direct insights as to how to answer this question about changing the way food is, is created. And, and as you went along the journey, was this sort of like a, a problem consumers expressed or was it like an unknown need or, or, or problem that they're trying to solve? Definitely when we started 
over nine and a half years ago, very few consumers expressed that this was a need for them. Very few expressed it. I think when you peel the onion back, what you begin to see is generally human beings want to eat food that tastes really good, that makes them feel good, that they can afford. And the more you provide food that meets those three, starting off with it's got to taste really good, the more likely they are to, to buy it, bring it into their lives. But no, consumers nine and a half years ago weren't saying, man, I really want um, a piece of chicken that is real chicken that didn't require the slaughter of a chicken. Um, I really want an egg without the need for an animal to be behind it. Instead, I and Josh, my co-founder, thought it just was really important. Um, and at the, the heart of the need, if you can imagine flying above the only planet that we know of, at least that has the kind of intelligent life that we have, on this one planet that we have, over a third of it is used to plant soy and corn to feed the animals we eat. A third of it. We have a little bit over 7 billion people, and you can imagine, well, what does it look like when we have eight? What does it look like when we have eight and a half and nine and a half? The kinds of animals we eat end up being a bigger contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and all the transportation sources combined. And for me, more than anything, and this is something that not most people are not motivated by, but it animates me. I don't think we should be choosing food that is causing harm to another living thing. I think we can figure out a, a way to eat really good chicken and tasty scrambled eggs and um, all that stuff that is so nostalgic and tastes so good without causing any harm. And all those things inform why we decided to go after this. And it, and it seems like the journey over the last nine plus years is awareness on this topic is increasing. So you're, I think humans are experiencing more like experiential climate change. And you've shared some, some points in the past that, you know, some of the primary purchase drivers for cultured meat is that it's done without slaughtering an animal. Sorry, I was going to say, Andrew, that I think um, there's a real clear analogy to draw with electric cars here. I'll take one country, Norway, electric cars made up 2% of the total cars, cars purchased 10 years ago. Now it's over 70%. Uh, in the United States, um, it was much less than 1%. This year, it's going to be 10%. And all a number of things need to come together to make that happen. Technology needs to come together. Risk capital needs to come together. Uh, entrepreneurs who are willing to go for it need to come together. Certain changes in how society thinks about climate change, how we think about our impact, policy uh, needs to come together. Um, so it's not just a singular thing and the timing has got to be right. And I think similar to what we're seeing with electric cars, I think the timing around the beginnings of, and we're just at the very beginning end of, of a shift away from eating meat in the way that we do is here. And I think we're going to look back on this just like we'll look back on gasoline-powered cars and VH cassettes, and just like we look back at horse and buggies today and say, well, that used to be a technology that made sense back in the day, but of course it doesn't make sense anymore. I often think about that too. I think our, our grandchildren may uh, look back at how we used to consume meat and maybe think it was pretty barbaric, uh, and, and like you said, in, inhumane. Yeah, just on, just on that, I think it's always a good question to ask ourselves because we're always so behind on ethics, right? We're always catching up, you know? And we, we always look back at, you know, 30, 50 years ago, whether it's marriage equality or racial equality um, or 
you know, the, the right for women to, to vote or any number of things. And we, we asked, well, how could that previous generation have been so uh, ignorant to what was staring them right in front of the face? And I think whether it's 10 years or whether it's 50 years, our grandchildren are going to ask that about us. And hopefully, as they're asking the question, they're going to be eating a whole bunch of chicken and beef and pork that doesn't cause all that harm. Because I do think we can't ignore the fact that not everyone, or I would say the majority of people, I don't think are going to be driven by ethics. They're not going to be driven by morality. They got busy lives. You know, They want good taste in food, just like they want a fast and safe car. And if we can figure out a way to make the thing that happens to be better for the animal, for the environment, taste a lot better, be a lot more affordable, they're going to move towards it whether they care or not. And I think that's where you get the real, you get the real shift. Yeah, let, let's key on that a little bit because the other topic, aside from having clarity of a valuable problem to solve when you're, when you're starting a business, the other shift uh, sometimes venture builders face, obviously, is understanding when you have product market fit. And it, it sounds like what you're sharing is all based proteins, culture meat is sort of experiencing some, some positive timing right now, some, some analogies, uh, some, some linkage to the tailwinds from electric uh, vehicles. How do you talk internally about this topic of, of product market fit? Is there a metric you talk about? I've heard you share some of your, your research in Singapore where you know, consumers were, that have tried the, the cultured chicken have said you know, 80% would continue with that as a meat option. Well, for us, it really starts off with a few basic truths that we build products around. And that is, all things being equal, a consumer will choose a food product that tastes better than the other food products. And then let's just assuming taste is equal, consumers are going to choose food that makes them feel better. And feel could be an actual physical, I feel healthier when I eat it, actually am healthier when I eat it, could be an emotional feel. And then the third is accessibility and cost. If more and more people can afford it, it's going to have greater ubiquity. So we think about those three things and we're making, starting with chicken, then we're going to be making um, beef and then, and then pork. We're taking a bet. If we can figure out a way to make it taste better, people can feel good about it, and ultimately it'll be the same, if not more affordable, then people will go for it. We've got a lot of data out there. You cited some of the studies. We worked with a, with a group that helped us talk to over 2,000 consumers, and we asked them, if it met those characteristics, would you switch to it? 80% um, said, yeah. Even plant-based consumers said they would switch to it. We asked over 100 restaurants. 70% of restaurants said, not only would I put it on the menu, but I'd remove the conventional meat from the menu entirely. But with all that said, you know, you can, I'll use a, another analogy, not electric cars, but streaming music. Uh, a buddy of mine who was a part of the founding of one of the big streaming services told me 20 years ago, they did a poll and asked folks in the United States, can you imagine streaming instead of buying? And 2% of people said, I can imagine streaming instead of buying. And now 80% of the songs listened to as we're uh, talking to each other today are streamed uh, in North America and not purchased. Um, and the point being, consumers change. Now, the initial consumers are definitely folks who care a lot more. You know, folks who are buying, they want their purchases to reflect their commitment to do something uh, to mitigate climate change. They care about biodiversity. They care about animals. 
But our hope is it can, as it continues to scale, it ends up including folks like my dad, who uh, might not be uh, using those things to guide his purchases. He's more on the taste and cost camp. Well, I think that what you're hitting on right there is maybe one of the most important topics around sustainability. And that is sort of the approach to targeting the masses. Do you come at them with sort of the altruistic messages? And, uh, you know, some brands do it through sort of clinical content, through through fear. And it sounds like you're saying you're, you're falling more on the side of value. Just make the product eat better. Uh, share a little bit more about, yeah, how you're going to make this shift to the masses. I think it's about you have different phases. So phase one right now is we, we acknowledge that we're not cheaper than chicken and we're not cheaper than beef. That is not reality today. So we have to live with that reality. And, and thus, you're not going to get 7 billion people plus to purchase it. And that's fine. So you start with a, a smaller group. Um, you start with a group of people who are college, college educated, who are making over $100,000 a year, who are a little bit more aware of these types of issues. And you speak more directly to them. And they're caring about personal health. They're caring about planetary health. And that is where you start. And that allows you to build a foundation. That doesn't allow you to achieve the mission, but it does allow you to build a foundation. And then ultimately, as you grow the different verticals that you're reaching out to, we need to have a proposition that is so compelling from it tastes really good, that is so compelling from a cost perspective. Wait a second, it's the same price or even cheaper that we don't need to use it's good for the world as a part of it. Now, if we do, it'll be, you know, the sugar on top, the cherry on top. But I really do think the main driver needs to be this thing just tastes so much better. This is more affordable. I feel better about it. And, and most people, I think, in the world are too busy to think about climate and animal welfare, things that I so deeply care about. As the, as the primary elements in their purchasing decision. If you can't get the believers out there, the people who are bought into the, the vision and mission to adopt something, then you, know, you can't really expect to make the shift to the masses. And um, you, you shared a bit um, on, the, on this point you know, uh, about scale and growth. You know, I'm curious a little bit more on, on the process of manufacturing cultured meat. Right, because you've shared a bit in the past that you want to make it boring, right? You're trying to normalize the process and not make it sound like uh, too too lab oriented. But can you share a little more on on how you're going to make it boring? So, in terms of how all this stuff is made, let's start off just talking about how chicken is made. Chicken is far and away the most consumed animal meat today. That's part of the reason that that's what we're doing first. There are billions of chickens all around the world. Typically, they're in these warehouses, 100,000 to 200,000, all crammed together. They hang in the warehouses for about 45 days, and then they're slaughtered, and then they're turned into chicken breasts and nuggets and strips and wings, all the stuff that I was raised on uh, growing up. And those chicken, to bulk up, are fed a ton of soy and corn. And that soy and corn requires some place to grow, and often the place it is growing used to be a biodiverse rainforest full of monkeys and spiders and snakes and macaws and all sorts of abundant life, we end up bulldozing it down to grow the soy and corn to feed the animals. All these steps are part of the reason why um, industrial animal agriculture, not family farms, 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about industrial animal agriculture is more um, carbon intensive than uh, transportation. Now, how do we do it? We start with a cell. And we can get that cell from an egg, from a fresh piece of meat, uh, from a biopsy of the animal. And then we leave the animal alone. So we don't need billions of the animal anymore. Then we identify nutrients to feed the cell. So in the same way that soy and corn was needed to feed that chicken in that warehouse, we need our own version of feed. And it's not that different. It's amino acids, vitamins, and minerals, stuff that enables our cell to grow. And then we scale it up. We actually manufacture it in a stainless steel vessel called a bioreactor. If you um, imagine what a, a large-scale brewery might look like, that's what these stainless steel vessels uh, look like in, in the context of a large facility. Um, and that's how we make meat. That's the process that we use to make meat that's served in Singapore today. That's the process that's used to that we'll be using as we build out larger facilities um, in North America and Singapore uh, and elsewhere. It's cleaner, so little to no risk of salmonella or E. coli or fecal contamination uh, of other zoonotic diseases. Uh, ultimately, we think it'll be more efficient. The goal is to get below the cost. Yeah, I mean, the, the science is, is fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, we could probably have a whole, whole talk or discussion just on the lab itself. I'm, I'm a little more curious, you know, just going back to your points on the consumers, like the connection between what you're just describing around the science and how you normalize it. And it seems like the unlock for it will be when you achieve pricing parity or, or cultured meat or cultured chicken gets priced below. Uh, and that, that will unlock or trigger so many conversations. Well, okay, how is this stuff made? Any, any thoughts on, on timing of, of the pricing parity? You know, I think, Andrew, I look at where, where electric cars are today. So you've got, you got some countries where they make up the majority of the purchases. You've got U.S. where now it's 10%. You've got all these auto manufacturers who used to protest the rise of an electric car, and now they say, we're only going to be making electric cars. But today, electric cars are still more expensive than on average. But we've hit a tipping point. It doesn't feel like it's going back. Right? I think it would surprise everyone if five years from now that gasoline-powered cars were actually growing, right? That would, that would feel strange. That's where I want to get to with cultivated meat. Um, and I think to get to that point, um, we've got to achieve much more scale, right? We need to build facilities and other companies need to do also uh, where we're doing 10, 15, 20 millions of pounds of volume in that facility. So we can supply the Walmarts and the Whole Foods and the Publix and the Kroger's and all of Singapore, not just a, a few restaurants. We can be in the, you know, the tier one cities, the Shanghai and the Beijings of, of China. We can be in Seoul. We can supply tens of millions of people so they can try it, right? So it can be a part of you know, a part of their daily food habit, not just something they do a few times a year when they when they find a, a rare restaurant that, that serves it. Getting to that place is going to require um, a ton of investment capital, many hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to do it. It's going to require a lot of consumer education. It's going to require regulatory approval in those countries that I mentioned. And that that's the next step for us to to get to and that that's what the team is is working really hard to to make happen on that point you you learn so much when you go through that that second third phase of, of scaling right from uh, manufacturing to to marketing and it sounds like 
it sounds like you're at the beginning. You you've achieved a certain amount of traction and starting to to scale. Any are there any critical things you're trying to to prove during the initial scaling, or new things you've learned since since you've started to scale? Yeah, a few things. So we we were fortunate to be the first company to achieve regulatory approval to sell this real meat that didn't require slaughter, called cultivated meat or cultured meat, and we we launched it in Singapore, and from Singapore, we've learned that there's a pretty big gap between younger people and older people and how they think about this. If you're under the age of 30, you really don't mind your meat being made into stainless steel vessel. If you're the over the age of 30, you got a lot of questions. Where is this vessel? What does it look like? What's inside this vessel? Who made this vessel? How do you know it's safe? All very fair questions, but you got a lot of questions about it. It's funny to see younger people's reaction to it. They shrug their shoulders and, you know, almost like in a, like, why, why would I care that my meat is in a stainless steel vessel? Why, why would that even be an issue? That's, that's been interesting to see. That's a very positive sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, definitely, it's, it's definitely a positive sign. We've had a lot of vegans come to our dinners who have just observed. They didn't even want to eat the chicken. Um, they just wanted to look at it. And, you know, I think they were excited that other people wanted it, but it really wasn't for them. So that, that's been interesting to see. Um, it's also been it's also been notable that just generally people have a lot more questions about the process than I would have even thought. We thought we did a relatively in-depth overview of how it's made when we first launched. People just want to know more. Generally, they're they're just so curious about why we're doing it, how we're doing it, how long it's going to take. And we've we've now tried to, you know, un- unpack that a little bit more for for people. The single biggest thing that we need to do in order to make this happen is to design and engineer um, a stainless steel vessel called a bioreactor at north of 200,000 liters times 10 or 20. And there are a lot of engineering and technical challenges in doing that. Right now, um, this piece of equipment, a bioreactor, is used for vaccine or for drug production, used by big biopharma companies. But bioreactors at the scale that we need at that 200,000 liter size, they don't exist. So I could have $5 billion in our company bank account. I could have $100 billion in our company bank account. There's no company I can call to say, hey, can I please have 10 delivered? Because no one's ever thought of it at that scale. So what we're doing is designing them from scratch. And we have a, we have a world-class partner that we're doing it with that specializes uh, in this and that is far and away the single most important activity that we're doing right now, the investment and in the engineering to, to do the design engineering and ultimately the, the installation of it. If we can figure out a way to do that, we radically increase the probability that we'll be able to do this. If we can't, we'll have invested a lot of money and tried really hard, but won't have a lot to show for it. Because we're not as proud as I am about launching you know, with a handful of restaurants, that's not the point, right? The point is to get to a world where the vast majority of meat consumed doesn't require the need to slaughter an animal or tear down a tree or use antibiotics or accelerate zoonotic disease. We got to get to that world. And you're only going to get to that world when you figure out a way to manufacture it at scale. And you're only going to get to scale when we figure out how to do this. And that's why, that's why we're putting so much energy into figuring it out. And as you face these, you know, these huge challenges, you're going to have to engender 
a culture where where people really feel tied to the vision and mission, and and I would imagine to you as well personally. And one of the things we've seen in you know McKinsey research on this topic is that your teams need to have a massive sense of belonging uh, to the organization. And because now we're working more in a world where people are distributed across different regions, I was just curious, what kind of routines, rituals are you trying to emulate for, for your organization when you get up in the morning to, to keep that culture or that sense of belonging so you can tackle this, this huge challenge in front of you? It always starts with sharing and reminding people all the time what this is about. I didn't co-found this company. We're not doing what we do because we really like to be a company or because we want to be valued at X number of billions of dollars or because it'll feel good to be publicly traded. Those are things that happen as we go along for this ride. The, the meaning behind this is the food we eat doesn't represent our values and we should change it because it, it really matters. It matters for us. It matters for our families. It matters for the great grandkids that we've never met yet that will be in our lives one day. And I think knowing that you're a part of a place where the most important question we ask ourselves every day is what can we do today to increase the probability of that world happening? What meetings can we attend or meetings should we cancel? What should we speak out about? What should we think more creatively about? What will increase the probability of that happening in our lifetime, of being in a world where the majority of meat doesn't require the slaughter of an animal? And I think that being true as the, you know, the North Star in our company, reminding people about it again and again, I think that is is one thing that helps us sustain the reality that is going to be really hard. I, I, there's no getting around. There's no getting around that it's going to be hard. It is not inevitable, but we can increase the likelihood of it happening. And I think people knowing they have agency around it, right? That this is not just going to happen, uh, but this is made more likely by decisions that they make today. I think that helps to uh, create a culture that is um, that's focused and is us, and that you know we're all proud to be a part of. Well, you have an you have an exciting uh, vision, mission. Uh, definitely, as you say, a, a challenge that uh, where success is not inevitable. So, looking forward to hearing more as as you scale up and achieve your next milestones. I, I really thank you for your time and look forward to talking again soon. That'd be great. Thanks, Andrew. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. I'm joined again by Thomas Laboka from Leap by McKinsey. Hey, Thomas, welcome back. Good to see you. Hey, Andrew. Good to see you too. So I want to start with Josh's perspective on his vision, mission, and the customer. And his vision around alternative protein and cultured meat is a very altruistic one. I mean, he's doing something huge, yet he knows that he has to appeal to the customer's taste first. So if he is a pioneer around sustainable lifestyles, he's approaching it by not going straight at the consumer with some you know, altruistic message, but rather solving the customer's natural problem. I just 
wanted to get your perspective on that because we see clients that will get tempted to take the vision mission approach versus the customer approach. Well, this is a good one. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting observation, and I, I find it absolutely inspiring that he's able to to strike this balance. He carries the mission, you know, to cut down and change the way how we produce and consume meat. He sees the planet burning, literally. You know, he he is comparing the amount of glasshouse emission that we are producing from the cars and all the transportation combined, and still not adding up to the to the amounts that are produced through the traditional protein. A production so there is a burning mission and yet he he goes straight to the customer and, and goes deep into the understanding and builds up this uh, beautiful equation that he's then very clear what he has to pull in order to tip the needle of decision making of the customer right so we've heard it's the taste is the feeling it's the identity behind it right and it's the price this is really powerful he's very very systematic and I, I i love how he's approaching it because you can really see that each lever that he then pulls is getting him closer to make it uh, very clear the customers will decide it's not hammering down the solution from day one it's actually really trying to understand the decision making of the customers very deeply yeah and i think linking on that from a go-to-market perspective uh, like you said i liked his framing around solving for taste, then accessibility, then cost. Uh, whereas in the corporate venturing world, you and I see it's very tempting to solve for cost or the P&L first, and then in parallel try to solve for the customer desire. Wanted to get your thoughts on, on the go-to-market strategy by building a community around people that have bought into the idea and him solving for taste. And he even mentioned he's, he was able to get vegans to say yes to, to cultured meat? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one. And I think it also leans a little bit on him uh, understanding very well where he is with the, with the product maturity and, and the maturity of the market. We've heard quite a bit on the uh, cultivated meat throughout the, uh, the episode, uh, which by the way was fantastic, right? Uh, now, stepping back, there's three types of alt protein, uh, three mainstreams. There's the cultivated meat, which is, let's say, the more most... Um, scientific if you were to, uh, to put it say it's 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 the furthest from the maturity of the market but we also have to ferment it and we have to, uh, the plant-based and the maturity of each of the technology is different so the go-to-market mirrors that and i think you know what we see is well in in plant-based what you're really trying to crack is the is the taste it's, it's not very close to the meat uh, all the time and you have new technologies that are trying to get there right so you have fat extrusion to make sure it's really juicy and meaty. With the cultivated, the, the taste is by design relatively close. So what you're trying to see is how do you get to the, the customer who does not care as much about the price, who doesn't care as much about the, the taste because that's already there, but is able to tolerate the price premium and has a bit of a conviction. So he's, he's building this early adopters. And then he says, look, you know, once I have the foundation, I can keep building. Well, the foundation is also giving him a bit of a time lag to, to actually go to the scalability and, and, and make sure that the, the cultivated production is able to reach the price parity with uh, the normal, traditionally produced uh, meat. And on that note, on, on scale, I mean, I, first of all, I like your point about maturity of the different products between all protein and, and cultured meat. But on scale, he ends with a big challenge that he has for himself, which is in order to really scale the cultured meat side of the business, he needs a certain type of bioreactor that doesn't even exist yet. And that was compelling to me because he is doing something 
brave in the face of uh, extreme uncertainty. And that's just another reflection, I think, for for our corporate venture builders as well, is that, you know, large organizations are often operating on a mode of solving complex problems and getting to a high level of certainty. Whereas in business building like this, you have to be very comfortable with uncertainty. And I think he is uh, expressing that well. Wanted to get your thoughts on that, on, on how corporate venture builders can take some inspiration from this. Yeah, that's uh, such a good point. And you can really see he's he's thriving um, on this. He's in his own element, right? But I think in, in, the, in the spirit of the business building, he's really betting on his own success. He comes from uh, the, the, the reality where, uh, look, Andrew, if I have 5 billion, if I have 100 billion, nobody can bring me what I need today. This is, this is quite, uh, quite crazy how, how, how daring you have to be. And yet you're still going on it. If you're looking into the projections, the most optimistic ones are, are uh, telling us uh, that we're going to get 25 billion uh, market value for cultivated meat in 2030. And yet, you know, like you, you're still going at it with no directors that are able to, to, to bring us at scale. And this is this is a really inspiring, I think, for, for many of us who are building uh, ventures. The seek the comfort in the uncertainty, uh, the combine the need to not just understand the customers and uh, figure out how do we bring it to market, but actually figure out the whole machine and the whole engine for for scaling uh, and getting it to the market, figuring out the price and figuring out the buy reactor, so to speak, while you're at it. Um, and this dilemma, it's, it's something that we have to strike as we go along. Right? It's, it's this notion of R&D and in many of the businesses is the notion of testing and iterating and just not having the full product there, uh, which I think it's, it's important to internalize as we're building new ventures. I think I'll close off with just one other observation that he's had to face uncertainty, first of all, with solving for taste first uh, versus coming at the consumer with, a you know a message around sustainability as the the forefront of the brand. He, he's really trying to solve for taste. That's that's doing something in the face of extreme uncertainty. And then from a production or scale perspective, he's got another major hurdle to overcome with these bioreactors. And yet he's still persevering. And I think our our corporate venture builders need to take some some lessons from that in in being brave enough to ask for the right team, the right amount of capital uh, to execute their plans around business building. I think we need to get away from pilots and prototypes and MVPs and hackathons, uh, but more towards the, these bigger questions and ambitions to, to solve the big problems. Absolutely. And frankly, I'm inspired by, by the mission and, and, and the part of the business building here as well, right? It's, this is not building just another app. Uh, is a huge, huge mission. And it's incredibly important. And I think in, in a few years from now, we'll be seeing a massive, a massively large multiple of companies also from the, the corporate venture building uh, in this space and, and solving the climate crisis. So that is definitely something to, to, to take away here. Yeah, and I know this is a, a topic core to you and, and, and what you're doing with Leap by McKinsey. So uh, it's, it'll be exciting to see what he continues to do. Absolutely. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you, Andrew. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.